This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Philip Lance, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, I'm interviewing Noreen Giffney about her book, The Culture Breast in Psychoanalysis, Cultural Experiences and the Clinic. And this book was published by Rutledge this year, 2021. Noreen Giffney is a a psychoanalytic, psychotherapist, a psychosocial theorist, and the director of Psychoanalysis Plus, an international interdisciplinary initiative that brings together clinical, artistic, and academic approaches to and applications of psychoanalysis. She has published and lectured extensively on psychoanalysis, psychosocial studies, and critical theory. She works as a psychoanalytic psychotherapist in private practice in County Donegal, which is in Ireland, for those of you who don't know County Donegal, and as a lecturer in counseling at Ulster University. And so I first encountered Noreen a couple years ago, 2019, when I interviewed her about a book that she edited with, um, with Eve Watson, a book called Clinical Encounters in Sexuality, Queer Theory, and Psychoanalysis. Um, and so I wanted to read just before I, I, I say hello to, to Noreen, a couple um, quotes from the foreword, which was written by Robert Henschelwood, who many will know as sort of a preeminent Kleinian scholar. Um, Robert said, talking about the book, its starting point of view is that the psychoanalytic understanding of what an aesthetic object does to its audience is quite comparable to the engagement of a psychoanalyst to his patient. Um, uh, and then secondly, he said, um, at the end of his foreword, he said, above all, the book itself is an iconic evocation of the breast. And I hope um, that Noreen and I are going to be able to c- convey something to our, our listeners about how this book is both um, an academic essay, but also what I discovered, a, a, a real lyrical quality to it, a real, and I, I hope I can do justice to um, the sl- sublime and subtle beauty of many parts of this book. So welcome to the program, Noreen. Thanks very much, Philip. And and I always like to start with a very simple question, which is why did you write this book? Uh, Yeah, okay. So there were a number of reasons uh, I wrote the book. Um, The first thing is that uh, before I trained clinically as a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, I worked uh, as a lecturer. Um, I was trained in the arts and humanities, and I mainly taught theories of gender and sexuality. And um, in my uh, teaching, I had always used cultural objects. And when I say cultural objects, I mean film, art, literature and music to help students to connect with the theories I was introducing them to, because theory can be so abstract and it can be quite disorientating for students. So when I came to uh, train and then work and also provide training to people who were uh, 
becoming psychoanalytic psychotherapists, but also people who are coming for uh, continuing professional development um, events and so on. I continued to use cultural objects as ways to help people to connect with the psychoanalytic theories uh, I was introducing them to. So the first reason I wrote the book really was to, um, I suppose, was to articulate some of the work that I've been doing over the years um, with uh, these cultural objects as a site of kind of playing with theory, but also as a way of building capacities and skills needed for clinical practice. So that was the first reason. Um, I suppose another reason that I wrote the book is um, it was to describe a phenomenon that I I know we're going to discuss uh, today uh, that I'm calling the culture breast. Um, It was was really to um, explore and um, really to develop an understanding of of a phenomenon that I was seeing in my clinical work uh, with patients, but also uh, a phenomenon that I have seen for many years in academic settings when I've been teaching and working with academics, um, and also a phenomenon that's been very important in my own life, which is the formative and enduring influence of cultural objects in the psychical um, lives of of people basically from from children up to adults Um, and I suppose also the the other reason that I wrote the book is that um, I I wanted to write something I suppose a lot of the work that I have done whether it's uh, in teaching contexts whether it's working as a clinician uh, the work that I have been doing really is around experience the textures of experience. What is it to have an experience? What is it to have an experience and to process it psychologically? Um, and to then, if we're, we have the capacity to do so, what is it like to articulate an experience? So I wanted to write a book about experience, in this instance, experience of cultural objects. But I wanted to write a book that in some ways would facilitate the reader having the experience that I was describing in order for them to then reflect on it. Um, and I suppose I've tried to do that in the book. I've tried to write a book that I would call a performative book, which is a book that uh, basically uh, facilitates people um, actually experiencing what is described. Yeah, and you, your, your psychoanalytic approach or uh, the kind of psychoanalytic models and theories you work with mostly are both Kleinian and, and the British independent tradition of, of, I guess we call object relations. And it was interesting. This was a unique book for me in terms of beginning to look at culture and cultural objects through the lens of um, British object relations generally. It seems like so often when we're looking, when we're thinking about psychoanalysis and cultural objects, we often end up, we're in a Lacanian world so so much. So it was really refreshing to to come at culture and cultural objects from from a, pro, a approach that I, many of us are very familiar with clinically, but not as a a lens to look at cultural objects, and um, it really helped me understand. Uh, I really it was really refreshing kind of way to come at um, come at all this. But I wanted to ask about um, the cover of the book, which has a picture. So if we're talking about cultural objects. Um, can you tell us, describe to us what what that that picture is about? And yeah, sure. Um, so the the cover, and I actually have the cover now in front of me, so I'm looking at it. Um, the the cover image of the book uh, has a photograph on it, and the photograph is of a sculpture. And the sculpture is um, it's a it's a piece of glass. It's it's a piece of blown glass, uh, and it's in um, I suppose it's it's a representation of a a young infant and a young infant wrapped up in some way, swaddled, um, and the photograph is of somebody holding this glass sculpture, um, and you can see the arms of the person, you can see the hands of the person holding, um, and you can see. Um, uh, the torso, you can't see the head, uh, the legs of the person, you can't see their face. Um, and I suppose this sculpture is by um, a New York-based artist called Jennifer Rubel. And I was so happy that she allowed me to use it because I um, had had seen this for years. Um, and I thought it represented very well some of what I was trying to get across in this book. 
um, which is the idea, I suppose, maybe to say something about Jennifer Rebell's work, she's very interested in art objects, inviting the person who visits the art exhibition to have an experience, that it's inviting people to have an encounter with the art object in the recognition that you can't actually control the experience they're going to have with it. But it's to invite the person to have the experience and to reflect on the experience and to take something away from the experience that they have created themselves between them and the object. And I suppose why I thought this was so interesting, why her work, I mean, her her work is so interesting. She's very interested in psychoanalysis generally. But why I thought it was really interesting for this book is that the book itself from my perspective, is offering the reader an object. Um, all books offer reader an ob- offer re- readers an object, but it's to offer them an object where they're going to have an experience. And part of that experience is going to be with the object and it's going to be evoked and provoked by the object. But part of the experience is going to be what they bring unconsciously to the encounter, which they're not going to um, recognise necessarily it as they're having it but it's something that they will reflect on hopefully the invitation is there for them to reflect on it afterwards which is uh, obviously Freud's idea of Nachträglichkeit um, and the fact that meaning making is something that comes to us often after the fact but it's to become more aware of an experience as it's happening and then to open up the person a little bit to be able to reflect on what that experience might have meant emotionally and unconsciously. Yeah. And that's for our, our listeners who are clinicians. They may then here begin finding, seeing the links to clinical practice where what you just said about first you have to be, have the experience um, before you begin thinking about it. Um, and I, I think the book, yeah, when you see that glass baby, I guess you called it blown glass, you can, I can imagine holding it and I, it's definitely, how could you not hold that and have some kind of experience um, of holding a baby, but I guess also having, holding a glass object, but anyway, and it would be interesting to hear different people's experiences. You kind of assume, well, everyone's going to have the same experience of sort of warm, loving feelings, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe people are going to have very different experiences. And also, also just say that I mean, because I, I, I mean, in my teaching, whether it's clinical students or academic students that I'm teaching, I would use this photograph sometimes to help people to begin to reflect about, you know, what associations come up uh, for them to this, uh, to seeing this, and then kind of, you know, what it might be like to hold it, and people often react they react in really different ways, but they often react against it as well. And there's often a feeling of anxiety, um, what it would be like to hold this and maybe it to drop. Do you know what I mean? Because it's an art object. So um, so there's quite a lot of, there's a, there's a feeling often of risk in this as well. And um, I suppose that comes back to the, the book as well, that um, to have an experience in some ways, it's, it's to take a bit of a risk. It's to step outside of what you're comfortable with and step into, um, step into something that's a bit more uncertain, uh, which is something that we live with all the time, but we generally don't uh, get in touch with very often unless we work in clinical practice and have to sit with a patient. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, that's very, very useful. Um, yeah, it's not the the obvious place I go with that sculpture is to sentimental places, but you've evoked something much more frightening about the ex- and fragile about the experience of the infant. Um, well, I wanted to um, to read a quote where you talk about um, your experience of reading Klein and Beyond, uh, and. Um, I guess another reason I, I really appreciated this book again is because so much of the Kleinian and, and Bionian and independent tradition of psychoanalysis I've read has been by clinicians. Um, and it's only been recently I've started reading more academics who write about these um, theories. Uh, but, but again, generally, when we're, we're thinking about psychosocial or cultural studies, we it, it, I think there's almost a kind of um, a bias that Lacanian analysis is best for psychosocial and cultural studies, and uh, Klein is best for the clinic. <laughs> um, but I think you you show us that does not necessarily have to be the case. And 
uh, I read another good book recently that um, was very interesting in this regard, Amy Allen's book. I might think about interviewing her next if she's interested, but she wrote a book called Why Critical Theory Needs Psychoanalysis. And it's, it's, and she, when she, she very much comes from a Kleinian tradition and, and argues very strongly for why Kleinian theory is extremely helpful to critical theory, which again was something I had never read about before, but was, and I feel like you're some ways working in that same area. So let's see in your, so it's, I guess this was your preface. You say that you were greatly influenced by Klein and beyond. You say, quote, Reading Melanie Klein's work was a revelation to me. Her writing completely bypasses the intellectual, the logical, and the rational, and goes straight for the viscera. In her refusal to engage with psychical defenses like intellectualization and rationalization, she makes contact with parts of the reader that usually remain untouched by a piece of writing, unquote. And then about Beyond, you say, quote, I came to appreciate that Beyond's writing evokes an emotional experience alongside representing it in words. His writing, therefore, cannot be read, but must be felt. A great way to approach Beyondian writing. Um, it seems to me that you have done a similar thing with this book. Okay, so this is me talking. It seems to me that you've done a similar thing with this book, which succeeds in evoking an emotional experience. At least it did with, with me. Um, and I can say a little bit about more about that maybe later in the interview, but I don't know. So just your thoughts about, about that and, and how you did it, how you evoked an experience with this book. Yeah. So as you were saying about uh, Klein and, and Beyond, um, they've been really influential for me. Um, I think partly because um, I started my career as a medieval historian and my uh, career was, um, my PhD was on reading 13th century Eastern European um, propaganda. Um, and it was, uh, I was trying to um, get a sense of uh, what was going on uh, emotionally in these manuscripts. So I was reading them very, very closely uh, th through kind of close textual analysis. So I suppose my my beginnings were very much about what it meant to read and what it meant to read very closely. But it was focused very much on reading as something that produces meaning, but intellectual meaning. Um, and I suppose when I came to read Klein, that, that idea of the kind of visceral response, the, the visceral reaction really that she evokes, um, I suppose that made me a lot more aware of the experience of reading and how while we're reading intellectually there's always something going on in the unconscious at the same time so reading Klein also reading Beyond who's very much about how how to kind of facilitate people having an experience as they're reading about the experience he's writing about um, and then also reading Thomas Ogden the American psychoanalyst who focuses very much again on the experience of reading but in a very different way in kind of what it means to slow down the reading experience so um, again because my beginnings were in an academic sphere where um, thinking is often like really manic uh, it's often you know working on loads of different things together it's often kind of you know in inverted commas mastering a text and then moving on to the next one really quickly to read uh, those three people and, and Ogden again or people like Betty Joseph the British psychoanalyst who worked moment to moment what it means to slow down something and um, to slow it down so that you can actually experience it right um, and we experience things all the time but we're just not aware that we're experiencing them and I mean if we experienced every moment it would be un completely unbearable but I suppose part of what I was trying to do was trying to get in touch with um, what it means to experience something and I suppose the way I do it in the book is through a, an, a variety of different means. Um, I do it through different styles of writing, first of all. So, um, so you know, I provide kind of theoretical overviews of discourses of, you know, the, the clinical case study, uh, the breast in psychoanalysis, for example. So I do that kind of in a very, um, I suppose, in a, in a, in again, drawing on these skills that I developed of close textual analysis, as well as kind of um, theoretical 
clinical kind of writing. Um, I also kind of talk very much about the clinical. I talk about, you know, I, I write in the kind of the manner or the style of the how a clinical uh, case is presented that you know there's kind of a context there's there's kind of you know an exposition there's an example there's an analysis of it so I do it on that kind of level as well um but also what I try to do is I try to choose examples from culture from film music literature art specifically in this book that gives people who are reading it enough description but not too much to facilitate them um, to facilitate in getting in touch with something that might be evocative for them. So when I describe maybe a cultural object, they may not have seen the film or, you know, read the, the short story, but it's to try and facilitate them the way in which I describe it in these examples that I call non-clinical vignettes. It's to try and facilitate them having associations to something that they have experienced. So, so in the way in which I try to evoke experience, I do it through the kind of the more academic theoretical way of writing, uh, through the structure of the way in which the clinician often writes their 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 pieces, but also in this kind of um, almost anecdotal uh, personal way of presenting experiences that I've had uh, that they may not have had, but which will hopefully evoke for them something of their own experience. Huh. Yeah, you're making me realize that right now I'm reading two books. I often like to be reading something really clinical and something more academic. And right now I'm reading two books and I'm having this experience. One I can read really fast and one I have to read really slow. The fast one is Mari Rudy's book, uh, Opting Out. I think it's like queer theory and psychoanalysis. She's so lucid. She's such a brilliant, lucid expositor of Lacanian theory. But you can read it super fast and it's just such a delight. And then I'm reading Michael Feldman, um, Doubt and Conviction in the Analytic Process. He's a Kleinian clinician who writes in great nuance about moment by minute, moment by moment things happening in the session. That one I have to read very slowly. I read one paragraph, I put it down, and I just like have to absorb it. Um, and I think your book comes a little more on the slow down to, to, to appreciate this book and you'll you'll really enjoy it much more um but i suppose what it's encouraging people to do which is it's something that you were talking about there um philip like i suppose what i'm hoping to encourage people to do is i'm i'm trying to offer people an experience uh facilitating them having that encounter uh and then inviting them to reflect on it um, so it's interesting that that's what came to mind for you in terms of the way in which you're engaging with those two particular books. And I suppose in, in some senses, it's possibly because of the rhythm at which they're written, because there's something of the writer that obviously gets projected into the book. But there's also something about how maybe your own associations to those particular people and how they work or whatever is going to impact on how you engage with the book as well. Because it was just interesting the way you described Michael Feldman um, and that moment to moment. And I wonder if that in itself, unconsciously even or consciously, provides a frame for the way in which you engage with his book. Uh, but some, some writers won't, like Beyond, for example, they won't allow you I don't think anyway, my experience, they won't allow you to read quickly. So you can read Beyond quickly. Um, I used to read a lot of Beyond on a train because I used to work, um, I used to work, I used to live in one place and work in another place where I had to take a lot of train journeys and I used to read Beyond on the train. And it was kind of a little bit like your experience of Feldman there, um, that I felt like there was only so much I could take in. Um, that, uh, you know, I could read, like I could read, you know, I, I could read really quickly, you know, I could skim, but it would almost feel like skimming, that I could read the book, but I wouldn't have taken anything in. So there's something, I'm very interested in the way in which people write that, you know, that facilitates the reader engaging in a way that maybe they're not used to engaging with the text which is that kind of slow way as you said and I suppose the way I often describe it to students is because students sometimes complain about 
theoretical material. You know, they kind of complain that it's difficult to understand, that they have to read it more than once. And I say to them, look, you know, if you think about it, this person has probably spent maybe a year or two years of their life thinking about this before they wrote this article. So why would you expect to be able to read it in like half an hour and take it all in? Um, so there's something about that that idea of the ready-made meal and the kind of the banquet almost that you have to make and that takes ages to make. But there's something gratifying in one and satisfying in the other. And I'm not saying it's always the case, obviously. Sometimes something that you read quickly is ex- extraordinarily satisfying. You get so much out of it. But I suppose I'm interested in that Um slowing what does it mean to slow something down that it doesn't necessarily have to be turgid that there's so much happening in those moments and it sounds like those paragraphs are like those paragraphs of Michael Feldman that you're taking taking in they're like those they're like a meal it sounds like yeah 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 and you said something about being able to reflect afterwards with others about it and in reading your book <laughs> uh, again I might might mention a little bit more my personal experience of it when we get there, but um, I found myself wanting to write long emails to you um, because we'd begun corresponding about possibly me interviewing you about this book. Um, And so I refrained from doing that because I thought Noreen is not my psychoanalyst, you know, but, but I had a strong um, need really. And fortunately I was with some family members at this time, and I was able to re- just to to process with them. In fact, we had some great um, conversations around my mother's dying body. Maybe I'll get to that. Um, but uh, and my sister and my father and I. So I did have a group to begin processing my experiences of this book and of my mother's dying. But um, but let me get back to um, from the sublime to the the, the theoretical. Um, because the first long chapter um, where you analyze, uh, um, now I can't even know how to say it, but psychoanalysis and the, psycho, the psychosocial, you unpack what is the psychosocial in a, a pretty, uh, it's a kind of a, uh, a very important thing to think about. Um, and let's see, Hinchelwood in his for, foreword said that you, meticulously frame the complex debate that has long been raging about the relationship of psychoanalysis as a pure form of clinical practice and the application of psychoanalytic concepts to the experiences of the cultural and the social environment. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about that first chapter and what what is this debate um, between clinical and applied psychoanalysis? Yeah, so the first chapter is entitled Thinking Clinically with the Psychosocial. And what I was interested in in thinking about there was an experience that I had been having myself with regards to psychoanalytic writing. Um, I suppose something I have noticed in psychoanalysis is that there's a kind of a split almost between what's called clinical psychoanalysis and applied psychoanalysis. And that split is not unconscious. Uh, It's actually, you know, that there is an area that's called clinical writing and another area that's called applied writing. And the clinical psychoanalytic writing is seen as writing that writes about occurrences that happen in the consulting room. And then applied psychoanalysis is seen as writing about um, occurrences that happen outside the consulting room. Um, and I suppose why I was interested in that is, you know, that that's clear enough and you think, yeah, you know, I understand that. But um, I think w- what it was interesting for me was that, um, again, as I mentioned earlier, I had started my career in academia. So I had published uh, quite a lot before I came to do my clinical training. And when I came to do clinical training, I really struggled a lot with the idea of me writing about the work that I would be doing with patients. I felt very uncomfortable about that, um, you know, even if it meant asking patients for permission and so on. But I felt like I wanted to write about some of the insights that I was gaining and that I thought were going to be useful clinically. But I felt I I really struggled. And I think it was because of my background and some of the baggage I brought from academia, um, because I was very aware that when a publication goes out there, it's out there and you have to let it go. But the way in which it can be used and and taken up and stuff, um, it's not just about you when it's a clinical piece of writing. It's also about 
how many, you know, whoever the patients are, whether they're, you know, a conglomerate of kind of different people or, you know, whether they're uh, anonymized or whether you ask permission, you're still writing about somebody else as well. So I, I personally was uncomfortable with that. So I was trying to find a way of writing about experiences, um, clinical experiences that I thought would be useful, insights that would be useful for other people working clinically. And the way in which I found a way to do that was by using cultural objects. So the writing that I was doing, I felt was clinical writing, but I was using cultural objects. But what I found was because I was taking cultural objects, clinical writing, it was seen as applied psychoanalysis. And I thought, no, it's not applied psychoanalysis in this instance. It's actually not one or the other. It's actually both in a way. So um, that first chapter is really um, talking about the split that I mentioned that I see in in, in um, psychoanalysis, uh, the fact that it's not just a split, it's a hierarchical split, that clinical writing is seen as real psychoanalysis in inverted commas and applied psychoanalysis is sometimes seen as kind of something that's watered down or it's academic or you know it's not kind of that important to take into account in terms of the clinical and I suppose the impact that that split has on what gets to count as clinical writing so in that first chapter I really am trying to think of a way to work through that split so that writing that doesn't talk explicitly about what has happened in the consulting room, uh, but yet talks about the insights that's been gained from working in the consulting room, how that writing can be taken into account when thinking about the clinical. Um, so that, that, that was, and I suppose the way that I did it really was by talking about something called psychosocial studies, which I feel does kind of brings together the the psychical, um, referring to the unconscious, the, the psychical as well as the social and cultural aspects of experience and kind of talks about the fact that how we can't look at one without the other, that they're interimplicated, that they are interrelated in a way that's in it. They're in, you can't take, you can't prize them apart. So I kind of use psychosocial studies in that chapter really to think of a way to work through the split that I see that is formed and is impacting in a way that I don't think is helpful in psychoanalytic writing in particular. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay. Yeah. And so then you, you came up with these, um, this idea of non-clinical case studies and vignettes. So, um, yeah, usually if we think of a case study, it's a clinical case study, but you're you're helping us understand the value of non-clinical case studies. Yeah. Um, you want to say any more about that? Yeah, sure. So um, as you say, when, when we think about case studies, we usually think about this uh, very particular um, genre of clinical writing um, where people write about something that has happened in the consulting room. And um, I suppose the clinical case study, as I say in the book, is, you know, is central is central in psychoanalysis. It's been central since Freud, who kind of provided the exemplar of what a, a clinical case study is um, and continues to be now. So it's central in clinical training. It's central in supervision. It's central in clinical writing. Um, 
And it's really clinical case studies and then also vignettes, which are kind of, um, I suppose, the, a description of a particular experience that occurs during a session. And maybe there may be a number of those vignettes that occur over a number of sessions. Both of these are really, really important ways of communicating um, insights, of communicating um, the use of skills and and technique generally um, of kind of formulating and kind of uh, thinking about how concepts work in practice and also talking about particular psychopathological presentations in the consulting room. So they're really useful. In terms of training contexts, I find them really useful. It's really useful to read about something that a psychoanalyst has learned about their own practice and wants to communicate to other people through writing about it. But what I suppose I found myself as a trainee, and then later I found when I was um, providing training to people, is that trainees in particular, but also sometimes people when they come for continuing professional development, find it difficult sometimes to to get in touch with... um, to get in touch experientially with what is being described. So you can look at it, you can see it. It's very clear often. It's 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 often beautifully expressed um, and you can learn from it, but you learn from it intellectually. So you go, okay, I now see how, you know, Bob Hinchwood or uh, Michael Feldman, you've mentioned, just people you've mentioned earlier, or, you know, Betty Joseph, Thomas Ogden, how they work there. And it's it's so skillful. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really impressive. And you learn from that and you can identify with that as well to an extent and and think, oh, I'd like to be able to practice like that. I'd love to be able to give an interpretation like that. But I feel that it stays at that intellectual level sometimes, not always, but sometimes. So I kind of, um, going back to kind of what I was saying earlier about using cultural objects when I'm teaching to try and facilitate students connecting with theory. I have been using, I suppose, what I'm calling now non-clinical case studies and vignettes for years, which are, you know, um, a film, some clips from a film, maybe as a vignette or a piece of art, like what we talked about with Jennifer Rubel's piece, Us, or a piece of music or whatever it might be. I had been using them and calling them explicitly to students. You know, we're going to look now, we might look at a case, a clinical case study, and then I'd say, we're going to look at a non-clinical case study. And I found them, and I continue to find them, um, I've literally, I finished teaching last, was it last week? Not this week. Finished teaching this week, and I was using some of them. I find them so useful because, um, and they have to be really carefully taught and chosen and, and, and kind of excerpted very carefully as well. But I find them really useful because it's like everybody starts from the same place. We all have unique experiences, but we all start from the same place of we we watch this clip or we listen to a piece of music, whatever it might be. And we start from that place. And we're not seeing the application of a theory in front of us. So in some ways, we have to take the theory and we have to bring it together with the cultural object and we have to apply it to the cultural object. So we get to kind of imagine or to play, to create in some ways what is what it might look like. And I mean this is a hypothesis of course. It's it's hypothetical because we're not in the we're not in the session with the film character or whatever. But what it facilitates people doing, I think, um, and I've seen it time after time, is it facilitates them relaxing. They don't feel as much under pressure to come up with some magnificent insight. Um, it facilitates them having an experience that they can reflect on. Um, so we have the object. They can kind of think about how the theory relates to that. But they can also think about the experience they're having in the moment with the object and then reflect on that. Um, so it kind of, I suppose what it does is it offers people an opportunity to interpret to hear how other people in the group might interpret the same thing, but from other perspectives. And even, so that's kind of at the level of skills, but at the level of then kind of experience, it really brings home to people. And no matter how experienced they are, people are always curious about this. It brings home to them how much of interpretation or meaning making is actually about projection because people really begin to see how much they project onto the object when they hear what everybody else's, their reactions and how they're kind of viewing it. So it really kind of offers people, I think, 
an opportunity to reflect on to what extent any of us are able to see an object for itself and to what extent we are literally uh, seeing things through our own kind of narcissism in a way. Um, so from the, so I don't see it that these would replace clinical case studies or vignettes, but I do see them as being very useful to use alongside the more traditional uh, didactic kind of case studies and vignettes where we get to see somebody applying a piece of theory to think about a clinical phenomenon. I think this helps people to utilize skills. It helps them to integrate theory um, and it helps them to see how a concept might work, but how I think very importantly, how they might use the concept. Like theory is often something like it's, it's the frame for our clinical practice. Like it's a really important frame for our practice. It forms part of the psychoanalytic frame. Um, but it's really important that people have that opportunity to kind of test it out uh, at times before they actually go out and start using it. It's another layer of experience that people can maybe have uh, in, a, in a training context, I think. Yeah. Okay, so you made a really good case for why non-clinical case studies um, could be and maybe should be uh, included in training clinicians. Um, and so I found that very interesting because as I was reading this book, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And as you know, infant observation has um, long been an important component of, of psychoanalytic training, at least at many, not all institutes, but so for listeners who may not be familiar with psychoanalytic training, um, for instance, at my institute, <clears throat> I assume we're going to go in and start reading journal articles <laughs> and, and talking about theory. Uh, our first uh, immersion was we had to find an infant that had just been born and go spend a lot of time with that infant. <clears throat> I had a big, I had a lot of trouble with this part of the, of the, the program, partly because it wasn't explained to me why we were doing this. Um, but probably other sort of my own issues that I was working through too. But um, any case, so that's a very important part of, um, of psych psychoanalytic training. But it's, I think it's during the pandemic, we haven't been able to do it um, because people can't be going into homes of newborn infants and mothers and possibly exposing them. I don't know, maybe some institutes are, are working that out. But so it occurred to me, oh, we could replace non-clinical case studies within infant observation and still achieve much of the same thing. Um, so maybe your book was very timely and, re and relevant, but uh, any thoughts about all that? And maybe, maybe say a little more about what is infant observation meant to, to do as a training experience? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, just with regards to infant observation, it was really interesting what you said there about that um, it sounded like you weren't told a lot about the function of infant observation before you went out. And I suppose that's a really important aspect of it. It's a really important aspect of the clinical training that often we go through different, you know, activities, I suppose, or experiences, but we're, at, we're often not told a lot about them. Um, and I think that's part of the experience of going into something, not know, having a clue what you're doing or why you're doing it. And um, that in itself evokes quite a visceral I think, experience, um, which over time we get to integrate um, when we have a chance to to think about it um, afterwards, reflect on it afterwards and then theoretically think about it. Um, with regards to infant observation, I did an infant observation as part of my training. I don't know how long um, you were doing yours um, one year before you, before the pandemic. Um, the, part of my training, we did an infant observation for two years. So it was probably a bit similar to yourself and that we were told we had to find a baby um, and we had to find somebody um, who was uh, pregnant and was going to give birth. And, you know, this is very stressful because, uh, you know, you had to find somebody obviously you didn't know. This was a really important aspect. So the idea of infant observation, maybe I'll say with, the, with, the, with, with hindsight after doing it, is that I suppose in terms of an activity, you find the baby, you observe the baby in the baby's own home, in their family environment. This was part of um, 
the, I suppose the setup when I when I was doing my training, it was important that it was in the home environment, and that you observe this infant for two years, and you did it every week, the same time every week for one hour. So you made arrangements, and it was important that it was the same time every week. And then you had to manage things like holidays, uh, breaks, and so on. If there are any illnesses, that all had to be managed. Um, and then you had to also work towards an ending with with people. So, I mean, maybe the way I'm talking about it now, it sounds almost a little bit like the clinical situation with working in practice with the client and ensuring that you, you know, that you're mindful of breaks, you're mindful of the uh, the. The, the way in which the unconscious reacts to breaks or, or surprises or whatever it might be. Um, but I suppose the function of infant observation, there's numerous functions. I mean, one is that you actually get the experience of sitting with an infant as the infant is developing in their family environment, in the environmental context in which they're they're living. So you get to see infant development in action, in a sense. You get to see it for one hour a week, for two years, every week. Um, so you learn about infant, uh, infant development from that. Um, secondly, uh, I suppose because you are learning about it, you kind of become very aware of how important that environmental context is. And um, you become really aware experientially of how important it is, whether you have children or not. Um, because the infant is so vulnerable at the beginning. Um, and we continue to be vulnerable, but the infant is so vulnerable and dependent that the environment is everything. It's everything, um, you know, concretely in terms of food, um, heat, all of that kind of stuff. But it's also fundamental to the infant in terms of psychological development and psych- psychical survival. Um, but I suppose at another level, what infant observation is about as well is it's an experience. Uh, it's it's called infant observation. But what you're actually observing is what's going on outside of you with regards to the infant, with regards to the environment, but also what's going on inside of you. And I suppose the experience is, as you said, Philip, it kind of quite, it evokes quite a lot. It evoked a lot for you, but I think it evokes a lot for everybody. And what's evoked in people is is unique to their own situation. Um, But being in that environment also kind of, you know, you have to find your own space in the environment and um, you don't belong there. It's not your home. Uh, people react in a variety of different ways, massive big commitment and things are acted out in ways that are not spoken about because the people who you're visiting don't, don't really know also, they don't know why you're there. So you get to really reflect on what it's like to sit in an environment that isn't your own and to observe and you become really aware of what's actually happening inside yourself and what's being stirred up in yourself. And in some ways, the infant observation is partly those infantile, um, what's provoked in yourself in terms of, of, the, of the infant within yourself that you were at one stage. That's kind of some of those infantile um, aspects are, are re-evoked um, and played out in ourselves. Um, but I suppose another aspect of infant observation that's very important is you have the experience and then you go and you're part of a clinical group. And this group is facilitated by an experienced psychoanalytic practitioner. And in my case, it was uh, somebody who worked with children and adolescents. And their job really is to facilitate the group beginning to think about the experience that the different members are having in the infant observation situation, but also in the group situation. Um, And ultimately, it's about becoming more aware of your own experience so that when you go in and sit in a session, you are more aware of the operations of transference and countertransference for work um, in the consulting room. Um, And then another aspect that's really important that kind of is part of almost a developmental um, aspect of this experience is that you have to write a clinical paper. Um, We had to write two. So we wrote one after a year and one after the second year. Um, And those clinical papers are really an opportunity to integrate experience to integrate um you know skills to integrate um theory um because i suppose essentially what you're doing through that experience is you're learning how to um you're learning how to uh put in place an analytic frame for yourself because we have the theory we have supervision we have our own analysis we have all the little bits that we do and the big bits that we do as part of our training but ultimately we provide the frame for our patients so the whole experience that is about observing an infant um is actually preparing the trainee 
to sit with the patient because before you could sit with the patient, you have to be able to sit with yourself, which is possibly more difficult sometimes than sitting with the patient. Okay. We're going to have to move towards winding down. We can go over our 50 minute hour, but I want to get to give you a chance just to briefly talk about the culture breast, which is a, a concept, I guess you're contributing to the psychoanalytic literature. I'm going to skip over a question where I, you used, I think it was a movie, Shame, Shame, yeah, to, to illustrate the Kleinian theory of part objects, which was a really beautiful way to get at understanding what part, part objects are through this, this film. But, but why don't you say something about the culture breast? Um, and then maybe I'll talk briefly about my experience with the book, and, and then we'll have to wrap it up, I guess. Yeah, sure. Um, and I suppose maybe just to link that back to what I was saying about infant observation. I mean, the experience of infant observation has been a really important one for me in the development of myself as a clinician, but also in the development of this book and my approach to providing training and writing about experiences as well. So um, you, people will see when they read the book how central that has been. And I suppose I talk about that more in the book. With regards to the culture breast itself, um, I might just kind of say something brief about the idea of the breast in psychoanalysis, first of all, because depending on which psychoanalytic tradition you come from, um, people have very different ideas about this word, the breast. Um, I suppose the breast in psychoanalysis, particularly in the tradition I'm trained in, the Kleinian uh, tradition, is one of the central clinical concepts um, in psychoanalysis and it refers to the kind of the concrete object of the actual breast the mother's breast or uh, the bottle whatever it is that feeds the infant but it's broader than that it refers to the feeding experience um, as well and I suppose the breast at a kind of another level um, I suppose another kind of a more symbolic level uh, refers to the operation of interjection and projection and basically refers more generally to um how we take in experiences, uh, how we process them when we take them in and what we do with them uh, if we have the capacity to maybe be able to make meaning of them or to symbolise them. And I suppose that very early experience at the breast will be, whether you're fed by breast or whether you're fed by a bottle, that will be a central experience and a, a formative experience and an enduring experience for the rest of your life. And I suppose that's kind of um, partly in spite of the fact that we can't remember it, and also, I think, largely because we can't remember it. So it will actually impact on how uh, we engage with experiences um, and encounters with objects outside of ourselves. And I suppose the culture breast comes out of this idea of the breast. The culture breast is like anything else, uh, refers, cultural objects are like anything else. They are objects um, they are experiences that we interject, that we um, identify with, that we um, split off, that we project, that we evacuate, just like any other experiences. Um, but I suppose what I was trying to do with the culture breast in particular was I was trying to get it to foreground the importance, the psychical importance and formative importance of our encounters with cultural objects from when we're very little. Um, as well as uh, as we continue to grow and develop into adults. So um, in the book, I'm writing about film, art, literature, music. So what happens to us um, emotionally and unconsciously when we listen to a piece of music or when we watch a film? Um, what is it that happens to us unconsciously when we return to something over and over again? Or um, what happens to us if there's something in particular that we're drawn to or repelled um, from? Um, and I suppose what I'm trying to do in the book is to foreground how those experiences get kind of... Um, how they become part of the psychical um, makeup of the person. And I suppose in particular, what I look at in the third chapter of the book, which is called The Culture Breast, is what happens when the relation to cultural objects becomes psychopathological for people. And that happens usually where there's been an environmental deprivation when somebody's been really, when they've been young. And they have developed a relationship with cultural objects um, in which it's kind of the cultural object becomes something they relate through rather than they relate to. Um, and I suppose uh, what I'm doing in the book is really to try and help clinicians to become more aware 
of um, when a patient talks about, you know, watching a film or they keep repeating the same kind of, you know, they're always talking about, you know, going to different concerts or whatever it might be, their engagement with culture to take those associations seriously because in some ways for some patients those associations will not be just a stray thought they will actually be part of the psychic apparatus which is holding the person together um, but in the book I suppose what I do is try to help clinicians to recognize this phenomenon that can be both creative on the one hand but can also be psychopathological and how then to work with it clinically if it is a psychopathological um, phenomenon for a patient. So I, I want to finish by sort of sharing my um, personal experience, a little bit of reading the book, beginning with a quote from Christopher Bolas, which you, which in some ways summarizes or condenses what, what you just said about the culture breast. Um, Bolas said, certain objects like psychic keys open doors to unconsciously intense and rich experience in which we articulate the self, the self that we are through the elaborating character of our response. So something about a response to this object serves as a psychic key. And so just briefly, I, I grabbed your book on the way I was going to the airport because I, I had to go see my mother who'd had a stroke. And so I found myself reading your book um, in, in the last week of my mother's life uh, when she was basically she was a little responsive when I got there. No, I think by the time I got there, she was no longer responsive. But so for about a week, she wasn't eating or drinking. She was in a hospital bed in the living room, my family's living room. Um, and I had, and so I was kind of going back between being with her, my, my sister, my father, reading your book. And, and I had an, an intense experience of my mother as an object in, in kind of two senses. Um, one in the sense that she was just kind of a, she was no longer, she was no longer there in some ways, the Jesse Lance. She was a body that was in her final days. So she was an object in a sense of an external object. But in another way, somehow during this decades of our relationship, the conversations we'd had, the interactions all got kind of dissolved away. And, she, and there was a purity of her object but also as kind of an internal object as that primary breast figure with whom somehow I, I was some regressed into back to she was she was the primary object that I had first known the first object in the first days and weeks um, and it was very moving experience that um, that and that also opened up conversations in our family as as our mother lay there non-responsively, and we all had to be present with her. This woman who had been mother wife um, to all of us for for so many years, and uh, and reflecting on um, on who she was to us in a in, in an impersonal. Deeply personal or deeply impersonal way. I don't know how best to describe it, but one way I thought of it, and it was a very positive experience that I was having an experience of her as a good object, but but a part object. Um, in Amy Allen's book, she makes a, a case that when we talk about the good object um, for the infant in the paranoid schizoid position, it's a part object. Only later does that part object become a whole object in the depressive in the depressive position. But I felt like in some ways I had regressed to a paranoid schizoid experience of my mother as a part object, but a good part object. You know what I mean? Um, uh, and um, I mean, I could hold in mind that she was also a whole object. She was not a saint, but... I was able to have an experience with her as this primordially good breast object too. So anyway, uh, that's a little bit of what I was experiencing. Um, and it was just really uh, fortuitous, I think, that I had your book with me during her final days. Yeah. So thank you. And thank you, um, Philip, because I know we had talked about, you know, whether you would share your experience of reading the book. So thank you. Thank you for for sharing it. And I suppose what 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 just when you were talking, what I thought back to 
was I thought back to the cover image of the book. Um, I thought back to the cover image of the hands holding the, the I suppose the, I, I thought back to the, there in the, in the cover image, there's two hands holding the sculpture, but it's, it's the, the way in which the sculpture is being held. It's in it. There's something very gentle, but firm in the holding. And that's what, that's what's come to mind for me now in, in just what you said. Yeah, probably because I was holding my mother a lot in those final days. I should help me. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Before I dissolve into tears, let's uh, let me thank you for the book and for spending your time with me today. Thank you very much for inviting me to do that, Philip. So you've been listening to an interview with Noreen Giffney about her book, um, The Culture Breast and Psychoanalysis, Cultural Experiences and the Clinic here at um, New Books and Psychoanalysis, a channel of the New Books Network. So please feel free to contact me at philipjlance at gmail.com to let me know your thoughts and questions about the show. And thanks for listening.